You can turn your, turn your uh, Bibles now to 1 Timothy again. We'll pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Think what it would be like to have discipled the Apostle Paul. Starting off, you know, Ananias was the first one that had to approach him. Wow. After something like that. Fortunately, the Lord was right there involved as he is through the discipleship process and through Scripture and his Holy Word. As we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and um, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul and Timothy, his protege, and and one of the fascinating things that we find about coming to faith and and about redemption is, is that people come to faith at all stages in life. Some do it very old, some very young. Most, it appears from Scripture, come after a season of rebellion. After a season of rebellion, the Holy Spirit convicts, and then they see their need for a Savior. You know, it isn't usually two-year-olds that run into the kitchen screaming, screaming to mom and dad, I'm so bad! I'm so bad! It's usually a period of learning. With... Timothy, it was probably approximately 15 years of age when he came to faith. Paul was probably double that. But as parents, we are instructed to train up our children in the way they will go and they will not depart from it when they are older. Then we, allow, we train them up and we allow God's Spirit to convict and to save. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy this, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well, Timothy. And then later on in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, it says, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Timothy had learned them from Paul. Knowing that whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, including Lois and Eunice, From childhood, you have learned and become convinced of uh, the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So as a parent, this is a promise you should claim. If you're willing to do the work of training up your children in the scriptures, you're at least assured they have that intellectual basis, that intellectual knowledge and that's a sincere reason in the scripture to be optimistic that Christ is going to draw your children into the faith. That is his will, of course. But it is your role to draw them up into the faith through the scriptures. Eventually wait for the Holy Spirit to transform their hearts. So we teach our children. You be the parent. You be patient with your children. You pray that, that God will grant them favor and give them the gift of faith. Scripture says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Later in that chapter it says, how will they hear without a preacher? You have to be your children's preacher. I know some of the children here don't like hearing that. But you need to be your child's preacher. Remember, train up the child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it when he is old. It's not primarily the Sunday school teacher that is to train up your child in the way that he he or she should go. This is the reason that many young Christians depart from the faith. 
It's because they don't see the Scripture taught at home. They don't see the Scripture consistently lived out at home. Of course, Pastor Weiler, myself, and others in the church are here to help equip. We're here to help equip the saints for the work of ministry. So over the coming weeks, we will talk more about that discipleship and how that looks in the church. But faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ regardless of age. Is by hearing the Word of Christ. Scripture's clear preaching is the Word that is the conduit through which God provides faith. That's why the same chapter as above says, How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. There is no faith and consequently no salvation without the preaching of the Gospel. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You are then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You must listen to the message of truth first, the gospel of salvation. Why is this important? The problem that we experience today is that the word faith is just passed around too loosely in our culture. We hear it said, you know, well, everybody has faith. We have conferences titled Women of Faith. Where all sorts of backgrounds of theology and things come together and they're all women of faith. Or people say, you know, well, those, those Muslims are people of faith as well. We're all just people of faith. No, we're not. We're not all people of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. By grace you have been saved by faith and that not of yourselves. I mean, it doesn't come for you. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. So, so biblical salvific faith must have the object of that faith being Jesus Christ, or it's not faith at all. You'll see in a moment why this is important. Now, if you want to talk belief systems, I, I understand that. Um, belief systems in general, that means a faith that doesn't save, a type of faith. Yes, everybody believes something. Even the atheist believes that there is no God. What does Scripture say about him? He's a fool, right? But he has the faith that he's not going to, or he at least believes he's not going to face a judgment at the end. You know, we know that Hebrews says, it is lauded for man to die once, and then comes a judgment. So his faith is wrong. His belief system is wrong. In the sense, there was a Pharisee named Saul, who was also a man of faith, Right? He, he had a belief system. And you remember last week we learned that, that through the Mosaic law, nobody was ever saved by keeping the ordinances of the law. Instead, the law are a mirror we are to look into that are to teach us about how fallen and unable to meet those ordinances we are. We're sinners. But if there's anyone who could have thought he might be saved through keeping the Mosaic law, it was Saul, Saul the Pharisee. Ceremonially, ceremonially, his credentials were unmatched. Describing himself in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote this, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the one. He was the best at what he did when it came to legalism. As to, a law, as to the law, he says, a Pharisee. As to zeal, get this, a persecutor of the church. 
as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul would say, according to the ordinances of the law, I followed them all. At least if there was sin, that he had then gone and given the appropriate sacrifice for that sin. But regarding his accomplishments in his devotion to the law, Paul continues in that passage. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, means those things that he used to think were something, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That means his resume. He just tore it up and threw it in the garbage. And he says, I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having any righteousness of my own that is derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God that is based on faith. The faith required to save must have its object as Jesus Christ. You know, Saul admits he was zealous. Oh, that man had zeal. You can be very zealous, Saul said, and still have your faith based in a lie. Our generation today has been duped into thinking, well, you know, those Buddhists, they're just such devout people. Or the Hindus, they're they're such good people. They're so devoted to their religion. They're so committed, God would never reject them, would would he? Yes, God will. Because the object of their faith is not Jesus Christ. In fact, they have denied Jesus Christ as the object of their faith. You know, the, pers- the persons who flew those, those planes into those twin towers, they had a lot of zeal. They had a lot of quote-unquote faith. They're in hell right now. They did not have as the object of their faith a correct understanding of Jesus. Look at the Pharisee named Saul. Saul was a man of faith at the same time that he was a religious terrorist. Saul had heard the gospel hundreds of times in Jerusalem. Hundreds of times. He presided over the stoning of Stephen. He had heard it so much it just infuriated him. Made him want to hunt Christians. Because if that gospel were true, if it were just by faith, all of his accomplishments, Saul would feel, I gotta, that means I have to ditch them. He didn't like that. That made him really mad. He didn't want to cash in his chips. On the road to Damascus, Saul was not seeking Jesus except to destroy Jesus and persecute Jesus. But why would God allow a terrorist to live in a rebellious state for years without intervening? Why would God allow that? Why would, allow, why would God allow Christians to be persecuted? Look with me at verse 12 in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, now, now Paul, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. 
Oftentimes, God waits to call people to repentance. He is purposefully patient towards sinners. Many of you here are probably a bit like me. Probably most of you are. Over three decades that I spent in rebellion against God, cursing His name, behaving immorally. Why does God permit that to go on? You know, people were, were hurt as I was a sinner. People were emotionally hurt, injured. During that period of me being a sinner, Paul hurt a whole lot of people. Imagine those Christians that were crying out at at Saul's persecution. Why, Lord? Why would you allow this man to keep persecuting us? God, intervene. You know, if Christ would have just decided to intervene three years earlier on the corner of Maine and and uh, Jones Street and, and Jerusalem, wherever Saul was, if he would have intervened earlier, think of all the people who would have been spared suffering. Yet God delayed his appointed time. And, and I wonder if these people who are being persecuted by Saul, the religious terrorist, I wonder if they ever prayed for him. I wonder if they ever prayed for him. You know, next month we're going to discuss God's sovereignty further. But today, in in some people's eyes, possibly mine myself, obviously mine myself, even Christians, you know, God is just too small. God is way too small. But we learn that God has appointed times. He's He's appointed where the nations are established. He has written out their boundaries. He has decided who is ruling over you in government. He may use the voter base to do that, to put him there, but he's putting him there. Scripture is very, very clear. He appointed the day of your birth. He appointed the day of your last breath that you will take. And yes, He appointed the day that you are going to call on Jesus Christ to be saved. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. And we are totally depraved sinners by nature, no different than Saul the Pharisee. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses in sins, Ephesians says, but God made us alive. God knows we are going to sin profusely until His Spirit regenerates our hearts and He transforms our lives. So why does God permit His sheep to wander? Why does He permit them to go astray? Why is He so patient towards us? While other people are suffering during that season of our rebellion, why would he do that? The answer lies in God's grace and God's glory. Romans 5.20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's purposeful patience provides a season of that offense to increase, sometimes over decades, and then for grace to increase. 
What do I mean by that? You know, does God just take pleasure in sin? Oh, by no means. He does not take pleasure in sin. He's not the author of sin. But he sure takes a lot of pleasure in forgiveness. God loves to forgive. Why? It's because those who have been forgiven much, they really love much. Nobody loved Christ more than Paul because he had been forgiven so much. Let me illustrate from Luke 7. I should say, let the word illustrate if you want to turn there. This is a fascinating encounter of how this works. Why God would let you rebel for years before calling you to repentance. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, tells us that now one of the Pharisees named Simon was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask, a vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, notice he's saying this, this in his own mind, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this immoral woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Notice Jesus answered him. He said, if this man were a prophet, and Jesus answers the guy, Simon, I have something to say to you. He made the big mistake of saying, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman then, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she since the time I came in has not ceased, ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Could Paul have confronted Paul, or could God have confronted Paul, Saul at that time, three years earlier? Sure he could have. Sure he could have. Why didn't he? Because God receives the glory for forgiveness. Why does God allow some of us to wait? Why did I have to suffer for 30 some odd years? It's for His glory. It's for His glory. Why does God allow some people to rightfully suffer for their sins in hell? That's something we're going to talk about in a few weeks. Why would He do that? Why would He permit someone to go to hell? for the sins they've committed, that they've committed on their own. 
Christ hasn't caused that. It's because righteous punishment displays what you and I are saved from. It shows us what we have been saved from. I don't know if we really have an adequate understanding of what we have been saved from. Sometimes Christians can fall into that temptation, that false understanding, you know, that we're really doing God a big favor when we come to faith. And now he's, he's really got us on his side and he really needed us. Yet Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What did God save us from? Isaiah 66, this would be the last words of the prophet Isaiah. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, if not the greatest. Isaiah 66 provides us a picture of the final judgment of the remade heavens, the remade earth, the eternal state. And these are the final words. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Sunday evening. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. This is talking about believers now. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come down to come bow down before me, says the Lord. Now we need to notice that this all mankind are the redeemed mankind. That will become clear later in the scripture. And they'll come down and bow before the Lord. What's it say next? Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an aberrance to all mankind. Paul knew Scripture. The Pharisee Saul actually knew Isaiah. He read Isaiah, probably memorized large portions of Isaiah. He knew this passage. He knew the writings of Isaiah And he realized what he had been saved from. It made him grateful because he was previously, in verse 13, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. As a a blasphemer, he spoke against the Christian faith. He opposed Christ. As a persecutor, Saul terrorized the church. As a violent aggressor, Paul set out to exterminate Christianity. In Acts 26.9, we find just to what extent Paul had gone at his defense before King Agrippa. Paul recounted his past, how devoted he was to eliminating this sect he called the way. Saying, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, But also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Notice Paul wanted to make them like himself. And being furiously enraged against the Christians, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's when he departed on to Damascus. Can you imagine how Paul... How Saul, if he'd never been born again, can you imagine how he would suffer in hell for what he had done? Can we imagine how we would suffer 
for our sins, what we've done, if Christ did not intervene in our lives, I think we lose sight of that. Paul marvels at what he calls the glorious gospel. In verse 11 and in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And then verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Just listen to that adoration of his Savior. Self-righteous Pharisees don't have that. Listen to some people today. They, they act as if they came out of the womb regenerate. Never did anything wrong. Never deserved any punishment. Oh, how hard it is, how difficult it is to invite neighbors to church, people will say. Oh, I don't want to beat them to death with the gospel. Oh, it's so inconvenient to ha- hand someone a gospel tract or say a kind word in Christ. Why bother a perfect stranger anyhow? Just leave them alone. Where's the disconnect? It's as if some people claiming to be Christian anyhow have no sense of gratitude to where they've been saved from, to what they've been saved from, the grace that they've been extended by God. We don't see that with Paul. Listen to the phrase found in the doxology of verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul loves Jesus. Paul loves Jesus. And he wants to see other people drawn to Jesus. He wants to be a vessel that God can use to help other people escape the torment One reason God allows many of us to go on for years before drawing us to repentance, drawing us to faith, is that those who realize what they've been saved from, they've got a real deep down feeling of what they've escaped, they really love to serve Jesus. Causes Christians to, by the mercies of God, present themselves as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship, Romans 12. That's what it causes. And understanding God's grace and forgiveness is the reason Paul came, uh, became such a devoted servant of the Lord. On the road to Damascus, he finally came to an honest understanding of himself, to his depravity, to his sin. And he came to an understanding of the holiness of God. And he knew then that that, that chasm between us and God can only be bridged by the cross, can only be cleansed by the blood of Christ, Paul was not beyond God's grace. Grace. That period of sin in his life was now overlooked. He was washed. He was cleansed in righteousness. Verse 13, it says, Paul says, You know, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. There's something we need to understand here. Ignorantly does not mean innocently. 
He doesn't claim he was innocent because of his ignorance. Paul was in a period of ignorance because a spiritual blindfold had not yet been removed by God. Yet this doesn't indicate that, that Paul makes any kind of claim that he wasn't responsible for his sin. He was a guilty man. What I think Paul is trying to communicate here, that he's acting ignorantly in unbelief, I think this can be uh, explained in the next few verses that we're going to touch on next week. I believe he is making a comparison between himself and Hymenaeus and Alexander. Later on we'll see uh, these folks, two weeks probably. You know, when Paul blasphemed or spoke against the faith, when he did all these things, it was before he claimed to be a Christian. This was previous to his professed conversion. It was during a period of ignorance, he calls it. Compared to that, you've got Hymenaeus and Alexander down in verse 20. And they'd made a claim to being a Christian. They had actually assimilated themselves into the church. Yet now they're being the blasphemer. They're speaking against the church. They are rebelling against Christ. They made a claim to be a Christian, yet they weren't acting as a Christian. And the result is, we'll talk about this more uh, later on next week, the week after, Paul expelled them from the church. He turned them out into Satan's realm, into the world again. And he put them out. And they were, by comparison to Paul, not showing mercy. See, Paul claims all this mercy. Wonderful things of God. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he's saying, they're not showing mercy because what they're doing now is not ignorant. They were in the church when they were doing this stuff. Paul says, before I was showing mercy, it was all ignorant. Hymenaeus and Alexander are professing Christians. And they're blaspheming the name of the Lord. Speaking against the doctrines of the church. That's what I believe Paul's saying here. I realize too that I blasphemed and I was shown mercy by Christ. But my offense was prior to my conversion. So Paul says what? No mercy. We need to do what we need to do to protect the flock. And that's how uh, concerns how the church has to respond to immoral behavior and sin. There's a line of demarcation that divides before you come to faith and after you come to faith. There are different expectations. Finally, the, I, I believe this is a crucial thrust of this passage. It's in verse 16, and I hope this brings it home. We find the reason Paul was shown mercy. Paul writes, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe on him for eternal life. According to this verse 16, the reason Paul found mercy Actually, he didn't find mercy. That's a horrible translation. You don't search under the furniture and and stumble across mercy. You don't just find it. A better translation here, uh, the English Standard Version says, received mercy. The reason I received mercy. The reason I experienced mercy. 
says he was a chief of sinners. He experienced the perfect patience towards God for what reason? So that Paul would become an example to all who believe in Christ for eternal life. So here's the issue we have to struggle with. You have to struggle with it. I have to struggle with it. The mercy shown to Paul is to be an example for everyone who will place their faith in Christ Jesus. So that means that Paul is not an isolated case, right? His experience of being called into service for Christ, verse 12, Christ found him trustworthy, faithful for service. His experience for, of being shown mercy is not unique to him. It's not saying, uh, it's, I was only allowed to become an apostle because I'm a special case. He said, it's an example. It's a pattern. Paul's showing himself as a pattern. Can we agree on that? So Paul's Christian, pre-Christian life as Saul, being a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, a Pharisee who hunted and imprisoned Christians, both men and women, you don't get much worse than that. And as a member of a panel of judges that cast his vote against the, uh, the Christians for death, that still didn't disqualify him as a Christian from becoming an apostle. His pre-Christian life did not disqualify him from Christian service. That sounds familiar to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 where it tells us virtually concerning every Christian. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So you and I were, were really a lot of bad things in the past too. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So ponder this, and this will be the challenge. Think about this. If Paul could be a renowned murderer, violent aggressor, before his conversion, and still be appointed to apostle, also recorded in Scripture to be an example to all other Christians, what previous behavior or decision, things we did before coming to faith, would exclude a Christian from becoming an elder or a deacon? Y'all just chew on that, and we'll talk about it again in a few weeks. And we must realize that Paul completed a significant period, se several years actually, of proving himself faithful in the church. He didn't just jump right in before. There, there was quite a time there before he was extended the right hand of fellowship by the apostles. They wanted to observe. And, and, and it's right and appropriate that a new believer, once they've trusted in Christ, that there's a period of observation uh, Paul, Paul himself says for uh, offices in the church, let it not be a, a new convert. So there's to be a time of observation to see if this really taken root. For time, for time of learning. 
You don't make new converts into those positions. But a life before Christ doesn't disqualify you. Consider this concerning people's history before coming a Christian. The Gentiles were, by the Jews, considered unclean. Gentiles were unclean. Jews wouldn't eat with them. The Apostle Peter wouldn't have visited one of those houses that, that a Gentile lived in. He would have never done it if he wasn't told to through a vision from God. And the vision had a twofold meaning. As, a, as this sheet dropped down from heaven with all these ceremonially, ceremonially unclean creatures in it that would have not passed the test uh, for a Jew to eat. And the Lord said to Peter, Take, kill, and eat. Now, let's first reemphasize to Peter that, that the dietary restrictions are gone. You can eat anything. But that wasn't the primary reason for this. Paul was being called upon by the servants of Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. That's the crux of that passage. And, and Peter would have considered that unclean. So secondly, with this sheet coming down from heaven, it told Peter that he had to go to the Gentile Cornelius' house. You've got to step in to this person you previously thought was unclean. You need to dine with them. You need to open yourself up to them. You need to share with them the gospel. And Peter's response, By no means, Lord. Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm not going to do it. It says a voice came to him saying, What God has cleansed, let no man consider unholy. But in Christianity, there can be a tendency to continue to view others as unclean because of their past. We live in this disposable culture, this throwaway culture, where we don't value people and what they can contribute don't value even in the church people that are useful to God, that they've been declared useful, they've been justified, they've been washed, and we, we a lot of times just want to set them to the side. You know what we know about your history. We know what you did. Rather than teaching them, equipping them, encouraging them to be ready for the works of service. Who are we to say you weren't washed? You weren't cleansed. You weren't justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we to call others unclean? Those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's too often that God's grace has been abundantly supplied towards us, yet our grace is not abundantly supplied towards others. That's something we need to consider in this disposal culture. I'm going to pray here in a moment. But I spent about 32, 33 years not understanding Christ. Did some things I'm not proud of. I wasn't an axe murderer. Are there any axe murderers here? But I wasn't great. Yet, Christ has washed me, cleansed me, hadn't made me perfect yet. That comes at glorification. But he changed my life. I didn't see myself as a sinner before. I saw myself as a pretty good person. 
I wasn't a good person. I was a sinner. I was self-centered. I thought about myself. I used people for my own benefit. Yet, I learned that Christ died on the cross to bear all those sins. And that he died for me. And that he rose from the grave proving victorious over death. I learned that. It changed my life. Completely changed my life. So if you are here today, and and you, you haven't pondered this, your before conversion, after conversion, even what a conversion is, are you ready to come to Christ? Are you ready to be cleansed? To have your past forgiven and forgotten? If so, I'd ask that you would join me here right at the front afterwards. Also, if you are a visitor, I'd like to meet you. Come on up, say hi. I'd like to know who you are. If you need to know Christ, come forward. Talk to Pastor Weiler and myself after we pray. Let's do that. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Lord God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, strengthen us to do your will. Lord, you've brought us together as redeemed people to magnify the holy name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be useful. Lord, I pray that we'd be joyful. Lord, I pray that you would use us to do a mighty work in yourself. Not for us, Lord, but for your holy name. Lord, we'd love to see people drawn to you. And I pray right now, Lord, and and I know a hundred others are praying in here right now, that if there's anyone who needs to make that decision to turn from their past and live for you in the future, Lord, we pray for them right now. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this weekend, Lord God. May you open many doors for us to speak highly of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.